Now to present tonight's top ten list, do me a favor, please welcome Kirby Puckett. Kirby, come on! made you tingle a little bit. <laughs> All right, uh, the category tonight of the top ten list, by the way, from the home office in Edina. <laughs> category tonight, top ten ways to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett. <laughs> top ten ways now to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett. Here we go. Number ten, Kirby Pickett. Number nine, Creepy Pockets. <laughs> Number eight, Bernie Crumpet. Uh huh. Sure. Number seven, Turkey Bucket. Uh huh. Number six, Buddy Hackett. <laughs> Ways to mispronounce Kirby Puckett. Number five, the Puckett formerly known as Kirby. Yeah. Number four, Punky Brewster. Yeah. Number three, Ken Herbeck. Yeah. There once was a man from Nantucket who curved his own bucket. And the number one way to mispronounce the name Kirby Puckett. Eagle Puck Kirby Dink. Once again, back is the incredible, the incomparable Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. 
want to welcome all of you into my little weekly sandbox here. And while you're here, take off your shoes and socks, open your Komodo, let's get comfortable, let's make some sandcastles together. Backwards K-Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, DominSnakeJake.Podbean.com, to hear this show or any of the other shows I'll have in my vaults of archival content. And speaking of content, I will never charge you here for it. I'm not a believer in Patreon and crowdsourcing and this fallen economy. Maybe. I'm just old school, but... I've never heard any podcast show that I would pay money to listen to. That's just me. Now, I will be opening some new revenue streams in January when our second season pops off. It looks like Podbean is happy uh, to have us on board for another season. And I'm happy about that. I mean, I would truly hate to get canceled. I mean, I I just brought a, a mattress, for Christ's sake. So, yeah, I got that going for me. Now, just know this. I will never charge you a penny for a show here at any time. I'm just going to come through every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Tyrus Raymond Cobb, baby. You want to help me? You want to help the show? All I need you to do is follow, subscribe, share, and download. If you're on Apple or Spotify or any other platform that gives you the ability to rate and review my performance, please, by all by all means, so uh, do that. As you see fit. I ain't scared. I mean, I'm not. I stand by my brand. I stand by my audience. And I'm down, damn proud of what we have accomplished here going into uh, our 11th month. So, let's see. In 11 months, I've gone through over 160 years of indelible baseball stories from the Cincinnati Redlegs, the very first professional team, all the way up to the just recently released uh, show about the retired and iconic Albert Pujols. And I don't take myself very serious, but I do take the work serious. I'm at a point in my life where I'm ready to expose myself to the globe, to the world, and leave something behind for these boys and girls. So going back to how you help me, by all means, leave a rating review and pass the show along any way that you can to all your Seamhead buddies. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me or the show, there are various ways. And I love the interaction. You can drop me an email, backwardskpod at gmail.com. You can also find me at jrobbie1 on Twitter or the show handle at back underscore k underscore podcast. I'm also on Facebook and YouTube. And that's under the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network banner. And I usually dig into fan mail here, but I'm going to skip it this, this week. And we're going to get down to the nitty gritty uh, we're going to dig into the mailbox, the mailbag a little bit next week. And you know, with all that being said, I think I'm going to get right after this week. I, I'm really excited about our next topic here at Backwards K-Pod. I know not only admired his play, but I actually met him in an old nightclub in Baltimore. Uh, it was called Odell's. That was back around 1989, 1990. And he was virtually everything you've ever heard about him. He was funly, funny, friendly. He had uh, zero ego that I could notice. Uh, speaking of someone who doesn't take themselves, didn't take themselves very too seriously. Um, so look, let's call all aboard. I see the catcher is ready to come down. Let's get on this uh, night train time machine. Let's get it up and moving as we're headed to the south side of Chicago, 1978, where this high school kid playing baseball named Kirby Puckett, uh, he's making a name for himself in the city. So let's set our destination and let's get this... This game, thankfully, was made for Kirby. And Kirby was made for baseball. And I say thankfully because as we pull into 1978 here, uh, where Kirby has grown up in the projects, you can see all the pitfalls of rough living and the lore of drugs and gangsters all around him. But as you can see, the young man is above the fray. He's a type A, singularly focused athlete intent on changing his stars. And 
He's a downright hitting machine. He's hitting the pin side of the baseball all over Chi-Town in 1978. He was the youngest of nine children of Catherine and William Puckett. He was born on March 14, 1960. However, throughout his playing career, for some reason I never quite figured out, his birth year was always listed as 1961. So it kind of made it appear that Kirby was actually a year younger than he actually was. Because he was the youngest of nine kids and grew up tagging along with his older brothers, uh, Kirby grew up playing against kids much older, mature, and advanced as him. He learned his craft through makeshift games on asphalt and hard dirt fields that surrounded his housing unit. In fact, Kirby Bucket, he didn't even play a game on a grass field until he was a teenager just two years after his family had moved out of the PJs. At Calumet High School in uh, the Chicago area, Calumet, hope I didn't pronounce that wrong, Puckett played third base and he received All-American honors there. Uh, even with his stellar play and name recognition, very few scouts ventured out to see Calumet games. The only scholarship offer that Puckett received was from Miami-Dade North Junior College in Florida. And even though Miami-Dade was a decent baseball school, Kirby wasn't feeling it being that far away from home and all. So instead of going down to Florida to play ball, he decides to get a dose of the real world by working a real job, which, you know, it probably gave him all the motivation to say, fuck a real job. I'm going to go back to playing baseball at a high level. He was actually making pretty good money. He was instilling instilling carpet and Thunderbirds at a Ford plant. When all of a sudden he was let go by the company unexpectedly and without cause. You know, the kind of shit that happens to all of us in the real world every day. And Kirby, meanwhile, unsure what to do next, was working a temp job when he heard about a Major League Baseball tryout being held in Chicago. He attended a camp, caught the eye of Dewey, Dewey Calmer, the head baseball coach at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. When Calmer offered Puckett a scholarship to play for the Bradley Braves, it was kind of, you know, it was a no-brainer. Drop the dead-end jobs, play baseball, get an education just a few hours from his home. So at this point, Kirby Puckett is now beginning his baseball journey. Now, the Bradley infield, it was loaded with seniors and left little chance for the freshmen to break in there. And rather than languishing on the bench, Puckett decides to give outfield a try. He instantly fit into the outfield mix as well as the lineup as he led the team with eight home runs. But this would, however, be his only season playing at Bradley. Unfortunately, his father, William, died shortly after Kirby began attending uh, classes at Bradley. And he would transfer to Triton Junior College, a college on the outskirts of Chicago, so he could be closer to his widowed mother. And before starting at Triton, though, Kirby spent the summer of 1981 playing for the Quincy team in the Central Illinois Collegiate League. 1981, as most of us old heads remember, was the year of the strike. That went on for almost two months, with revenue barely trickling in because of the uh, said strike. Many of these Major League Baseball teams cut back on operations. Thus was the case for the assistant farm director for the Twins, Jim Rance, who was using his free time to visit his son, Mike, who was playing for Peoria in the Collegiate League. And wouldn't you know it, just by chance, the night that Jim Rance shows up, it's his son's Peoria team versus Kirby and the team from Quincy. And, of course, Rance had come to see his son, of course. But, yeah, I mean, whatever. He's got time left to see more of that. This kid, Kirby Puckett, is ridiculous. And Rance would later recall, he had like four hits. He threw a runner out from center field at the plate. And the best thing about all of this was he was the only scout there to see it. And based on Rance's report, the Twins selected Kirby Puckett with the third overall pick in the 1982 baseball uh, amateur draft. Now, 
They were unsuccessful in their first few, few attempts to sign him. There were some haggling negotiations over money. And Puckett, who was playing for Triton that summer, he goes off. He's batting 472 with 16 dogs, 69 games. And he will lead Triton to the national finals. And he was named the Regent JV Junior College Player of the Year. So, with his value now established... Puckett finally signs with the Twins. He reports to Elizabethton, Tennessee. And he led the Appalachian League in almost every batting statistic, including average, runs, total bases, stolen bases. And Baseball American names him League Player of the Year. In 1983, Kobe gets promoted to the Visalia Oaks in the California League. And he was again named Player of the Year as he jumped out to a 16-game hitting streak from Game 1, and he would bat 314 for the season. In 1984, Puckett jumps two levels to join AAA International League with the Toledo Mudheads. Uh, two Twins coaches in particular, Tom Kelly and Rick Stelmazek, who had worked with Puckett in instru- Instructional League, he declared, both of those guys declared that he was ready for the big show. But the Twins... Not wanting to rush that pie, they decided to keep Puckett in the oven just a little bit longer where he was until his call-up was made in May. The Twins were in Cali, and the Mudheads were playing in Maine at the time of the call-up. Now, Puckett's cross-country promotion, it was a cross-country adventure for sure, with his connecting flight in Atlanta being held up by a long mechanical delay, Puckett goes to LAX way, he gets to LAX way behind schedule. He hops a cab to the Big A. The fare by the time he gets there is $83, which of course was more than, you know, uh, minor league of Kirby Puckett had in his pockets at this time. And when he arrived at the stadium, Kirby runs inside, he gets the money to pay the cab fare, but it was too late to play the game, as manager Billy Gardner had already scratched him from that starting lineup. His chance came the next night when he became the 298th member of the Minnesota Twins. After grounding out his first at-bat, he became only the ninth player in the 20th century to have four hits in their Major League Baseball debut as he hit four singles after that ground out. The following week, Puckett made his first appearance in the Metrodome before the home crowd in Minneapolis. The recorded attendance for the game was 26,761. In reality, there were fewer than 10,000 fans there. As this was the first game of a ticket buyout scheme orchestrated by the businesses of Minneapolis-St. Paul to ensure that the Twins would sell enough tickets to keep the team from exercising an escape clause in their lease and leaving the city. Ironically, it won't even be long before Kirby changes the complexion and fortunes of the club and ticket sales will not be a problem. But this is where the Twins are in 1984. And they need something to fire up this fan base. And right on cue, here comes Kobe. And before long, here comes the Twins fans filling the Homer Dome. For the first time since 1979, the Twins are in a pennant race. They fall short in the final weeks of the season. But baseball fever had taken over at the Twins fan base. And it was almost single-handedly because of number 34 out there in the outfield. Now, let's take a look at those stats on Kirby Puckett's 1984 rookie season. He came in third for AL Rookie of the Year honors behind a couple of Mariners and winner Alvin Davis and runner-up pitcher Mark Langston. And side note here, not a bad Rookie of the Year roll call there in 1984. They got Langston, Puckett, Roger Clemens, Tim Tuffel, Al Nipper, Mark Gubaza. Almost all those guys had bigger and better careers than the winner Alvin Davis that And, you know, that's just quite a class. I'm going to be honest with you. Kirby had a 2.7 war in his rookie year. He played in 128 games. He had 165 hits and 583 plate appearances. 
12 doubles, 5 triples. He scored 63 runs. He drove in 31, 0 home runs. 14 stolen bases, 7 times caught. 16 walks, 69 strikeouts. A 296, 320, 336 slash, 665 OPS, and a 79 OPS plus. Okay, so not a bad rookie campaign. He got his feet wet playing in the challenging uh, Homer Dome outfield there. And sidebar here, the Metro Dome was difficult not because of her dimensions, she was tough on outfielders who had to find that white ball that would get lost in that white color of the dome. That's another story for another pot. Again, not a bad rookie campaign. He's shown he has a skill set with a pretty high ceiling, and he just has a few things to work on. You know the way it used to be with rookies. Boy, I tell you, these rookies that come up now are more prepared than they were ever. But I digress. And have you noticed, he didn't homer that first year in the majors, but he connected early in 1985 when he dropped three-run dong all over Seattle pitcher Matt Young's lips. A fly ball that just cleared the left-field plexiglass extension. And yes, youngins, the Metrodome had a home-run wall as well as like this plexiglass extension that rose above the wall to make home runs tougher at the Homer Dome. And if you've never seen this, you're going to want to go to your Google machine and check it out so you know what Snake is talking about here because that plexiglass extension comes in play in Kirby's story. But now, along with this plexiglass extension, a new barrier had taken foot in center field, and his name was Kirby Puckett Puckett. The Twins fans became all too accustomed to watching their exciting center fielder drift back toward the wall, plant himself on the warning track, leap high into the air to snatch a sure extra base hit from from being a uh, you know from being a sure extra base hit. Puckett hit well throughout the 1985 season. And he had a chance for 200 hits as the season wound down at home against Cleveland. And with him sitting at 199, it looked like Kirby had his 200 hits in his sophomore season when he had a sharp grounder that skipped past first base from Mark Mike Hargrove. The play was later ruled an error, but 199 hits. You know, that's still quite an effort for, your, for a second-year player. Puckett, stocky build. Oh, it made him look like an NFL running back, or better yet, like, you know, a fire extinguisher, a fire extinguisher with legs. One look at him, and you can tell he was a professional athlete, but one whose game was probably built on power rather than speed. He was often compared to Jimmy Toy Cannon Wynn, who had an outstanding career with the Houston Colt 45s, or like Slugger, uh, back in the day, Hack Wilson. But, Pickpocket displayed very little power when he broke in. He followed up his zero hit, uh, home run rookie season with only four in 1985. And truly, it was his speed that made him stand out, especially in the power-driven American League as he racked up triples and stolen bases in addition to uh, bunt base hits. Well, all that changed in 1986. He still had the quickness and speed element in his baseball arsenal. But now there was power. Over the offseason, Kirby put in the work with Twins batting coach Tony Oliva, and he helped Puckett establish his soon-to-be trademark leg-kick batting style. The coaching paid off. Kirby goes home and lists the first seven games in 1986, but then he begins to square up some balls pretty consistently. And by the end of April... He had led the league with 8 home runs, 22 runs scored, and 36 hits. Not to mention a three ninety six batting average and 16 runs batted in through just the first 21 games. And that was good enough to win his first AL Player of the Month award. He stays hot into May, dropping Dong in Yankee Stadium before moving on to Detroit. A strong win is blowing in from left field with Tigers ace badass Jack Morris on the bump. And Puckett leads off the game. But 
the wind wasn't strong enough, and for one matchup, Puckett was the unstoppable badass as he puts Morris's first pitch over the wall in left field. The next night, first pitch, bang, fucking does it again. First pitch, get it out of my fucking house. It was his ninth home run in the Twins' the last 11 games, and manager Ray Miller had seen enough. It was time to move Puckett down the lineup where his power and his production would be more useful. And look, and Ray Miller, who was a fantastic pitching coach, not so good a manager, can figure this out. And Brian Cashman can't. Yeah. <laughs> you got problems, Jackies. But again, I digress. By the following week, Puckett is batting second. And soon after the All-Star game, Miller calls Puckett into his office and he says, Kirby, you're now the number three hitter. Go out there and keep doing what you're doing, young man. To which Kirby shoots back, you know, isn't that spot for the team's best hitter? To which, you know, I've met and drank 100-year-old scotch with Ray Miller. I imagine him sitting there with a marble light hanging from his lips and saying, Kirby, you are my best hitter. Are you kidding me? So, for a while, Puckett, Puckett alternated between the three and the leadoff spot in the order. On August 1st versus the Oakland A's, he leads off with a triple. Burt Blylevin grabbed the spotlight when he struck out the 3,000 batter of his career. And he would go on the fan 15 A's that night, tying the Twins record. But Kirby, he would put the attention on his star with a double in the fifth, a single in the sixth. And now... He had a chance for the second cycle in four days. The first time, a few games before, he came up needing that home run in his last at-bat, and he went down swinging. Puckett acknowledges that he was pressing, and this time, in the eighth, as he's walking to the box needing that homer, he told himself not to go up there looking for the homer, don't press, just hit the ball and see what happens. And unbelievably, it worked. Puckett dropped dong, and he got his cycle. Puckett would finish the season with 31 home runs, the most he would ever hit in his career. He became the first person ever to be held without a home run with at least 500 at-bats to later hit 30 home runs in any given year after. In addition to his batting prowess that season, Puckett won his first gold glove, the first of six he would gather during his career, and he finished sixth in AL MVP voting. That fall, Puckett married Tanya Hudson, a Minneapolis woman he met after moving to Minnesota, and the Puckets would quickly adopt two infants in the ensuing years, Catherine in 1990 and Kirby in 1992. By now, Kirby is the anchor. Keeping the team grounded and on course. Uh, he has put in that number three hole in 1967. And he quickly shows that's where he belongs. And the opening game of what would prove to be a magical season, Puckett hits a two-run blast in the third to put Minnesota ahead of Oakland 2-1. to The Tiger, uh, the Twins would fall behind again, but Puckett opens the eighth with a single, and he would come around to score the tying run in the tenth. Uh, I'm sorry, he would come around to score the tying run after that single. In the tenth, he drops a ball into the gap for a double, and he scores the walk-off winner. He also showed that uh, gold glove skill he's got out there by robbing Mickey Tellington of a home run that would have put Oakland up earlier in the game. Kirby stayed hot in that first half, sharing the team leading RBI with cleanup basher Kent Herbeck at the All-Star break. And before a Saturday game against Milwaukee that year, Oliva gets in Kirby's ear and he tells him he wants him to be more aggressive at the plate. And Puckett responds to his mentor's pleas with a four-for-four day and two dogs. The next day, Kirby and Oliva are sitting next to one another on the tarp. And Puckett says to his coach, you know, Tony, I feel like something special is going to happen today. 
And those words would prove to be prophetic, as Puckett dismantled the Brewers that day on both sides of the ball. In the first, he drives in a run with a single. He homers in the third to give the Twinkies a 2 to nothing lead. The Brewers would tackle on three runs to take the lead, but Puckett singled and scored the tying run in the fifth. Milwaukee retook the advantage in the bottom half of the inning, and it could have been worse as Kirby would rob Robin Yount of a game-breaking grand slam with a leaping snag at the wall. Pocket doubles in the eighth as part of his three-run rally that put Minnesota back on top. In the ninth inning, with Greg Gagne on first base, Puckett hits an opposite field two-run shot for his sixth hit of the game. The 10 consecutive hits he gathered versus Milwaukee on those two days set an AL record and tied an MLB mark. And Kirby is now the ball player that the Twins had envisioned him to be. This five-tool player that is setting the standard. A few days later, back at the Met, the Twins trail Boston by a run in the ninth. With two outs, Kirby hits a line drive missile over the left field wall to tie the game. The Twins would go on to win the game in extra innings, and from there, they would go on to win the AL West pennant crown. Puckett would finish third in ML, uh, AL MVP voting, behind the winner George Bell of the Blue Jays, and Alan Trammell, the eventual Hall of Fame shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. The Twins had been underdogs all year, but they had to find the odds, and they had befuddled the head experts as they knocked the Tigers out of the ALCS to face off versus the heavily favored St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series. And the Cards had built a three games into advantage, and they were throwing a Southpaw John Tudor to the bump in Game 6 at the Metrodome. After four and a half innings in the book, the Cards had a 5-2 lead. And at this point, the White Rat, Cards manager, Whitey Herzog. Whitey Herzog, he's probably thinking to himself, if I could just squeeze out two more innings from my ace here, I can go to my beast-ass bully. The Twins, on the other hand, are probably thinking... Well, we better do something fast before this gets perilous and he goes to his beast-ass bully. We better do something fast. And they did. Puckett, who already had two hits in the game, is the catalyst converter in the Minnesota engine. He launched the first pitch he sees from Tudor and smacks it right through the box and into center field for a clean base hit. You know, before all this shifting horse shit. Anyway. This clean, beautiful, once-accepted base hit up the middle. It starts a four-run rally. And now, the Twins have taken the lead. And the sixth pocket walks. And the next batter, Kurt, Ken Herbeck, hits the grand slam. Checkmate. Ding-ding. Game over. And while the headlines were all about Herbeck and Don Beller and their impressive home runs in that game, the real star was Kirby, who got on base five times and scored four runs. And while he was overlooked this game six here in 1987, trust me, the next game six that dude plays in would be one for the ages. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We're going to get there. In the seventh game, Puckett added two more hits, matching cards outfitter Willie McGee with the most hits in the series as the Twins beat St. Louis 4-2 for their first world championship since moving to Minnesota. The Twins didn't repeat in 1988, but Puckett probably had one of his best years ever. Over the offseason, he worked out. He's lifting weights with Vikings punter Greg Coleman, and he's playing basketball. He laid off red meat for a few weeks and reported to camp lighter and stronger. Before the season was over, he collected his 1,000th hit of his career, becoming, becoming one of only four players to accomplish that feat in his first five seasons, along with Ducky Medwick, Paul Wainer, and Earl Combs. Puckett to- topped 100 in both runs and RBIs. He had 234 hits, which was uh, the second year of a 200. It gave him the most hits in the AL for the second consecutive year. He also led the majors with those uh, 234 knocks, and his 356 average was second to 
only to Wade Boggs, who was on his fourth consecutive batting title. But Kirby had the highest batting average by an AL right-hander since uh, DiMaggio hit 357 in 1941. And for the second straight year, Puckett finishes third for the AL MVP award. And Puckett's numbers, uh, they kind of weren't up to par in some ways, certainly in the power production mold in some ways in 1989. But he did hit well enough to lead the AL in hits with 215 for the third consecutive year, as well as join Rod Carew and Tony Oliva as the only twins to win a batting crown. Years later, Joe Maurer would become the fourth twin and the only catcher to capture an AL batting title. Puckett, he was in a virtual tie with ace third baseman uh, Carney Lansford on the final day of that season when Lansford went hitless and Kirby hit two doubles to finish at 339 and take the title. Like I said, that was his third straight year leading the league in hits. Only Tyrus Raymond and Tony Oliva could lay claim to that at that time. I know Ichiro uh, is in that group now as well. By this time, Kirby is being acknowledged by some as the best player in the game. The Twins believe he is the best player in baseball, and after the 1989 season is in the books, they reward him with a huge, a huge mammoth-sized contract, a monumental, groundbreaking contract of three years, $9 million. Can you believe that someone... Would pay a baseball player three million dollars a year. I mean, it's important to note that three million dollars in 1990 it has the purchasing value of around seven million dollars here in the 2022 economy. So, in today's terms, it's a three-year deal for 21 million dollars. It's still a great bargain. Now that dudes are looking for uh, you know 40 million dollars a year in free agency. Pocket had been a fixture in center field for the Twins. But that began to change in 1990. Before an August game in Cleveland, manager Tom Kelly told Kirby to check the lineup card very carefully. When he looked at it, it said left field for the first time in his career. You know, he's starting somewhere else besides center field. Before this game was over, Kirby would be playing three other positions. Shortstop Greg Gagne was removed for a uh, pinch hitter in the top of the eighth. Kelly had a couple infielders in reserve, but he wanted to save them in case the game went into extra innings or he needed one of them for a pinch hit duty in the ninth. So, to keep the infield integrity, Puckett went to play shortstop in the eighth, and before the inning was over, he was shuffled to second base and third as Kelly shifted him around the infield to positions where he felt the ball was least likely to be hit. Twins utility ace Al Newman he praised Kirby for his Burt Campanaris-like versatility, and he hoped he could raise the salary needle for utility players throughout the league. Kelly would choose Puckett in the infield again, but very rarely. The Twins were concerned with age and health. Playing on that turf, and the effects that that may have on Kirby's body and game. So, they began splitting him between center field and right field, and in 1994, he was in right field for good. The Twins finished last in 1990, and no one took them for contenders in 1991. Not even the Twins players or their moms would even consider them a contender. And true to form, the Twins struggled out the gate for the first two months of baseball. But, towards the end of May, Puckett and the Twins began to rise like a phoenix, on May 23rd, Kirby, uh, Kirby has his second six-hit game of his career. However, Minnesota would strand 21 runners on uh, base in 11 innings, and they would lose to the Texas Rangers, who are in the midst of a winning streak themselves. The following week, though, the Twins would snap the Rangers' win streak at 14 games. Puckett drove in two runs in a 3 nothing victory. And a few days later, Minnesota begins a winning streak of their own. 15 games that finally moved the Twins into first place. The Twins went on to win the Western Division pennant and met Toronto in the playoffs. Puckett started slow, just one hit in his first eight at-bats. But then he turned it on as Minnesota put Toronto down four games to one. 
Puckett hit a home run and a single on the series clincher, putting Minnesota in the driver's seat for good. And Kirby Puckett was named ALCS MVP. Now, the Twins would be in their second World Series in four years. And this time, they would be facing a budding NL dynasty in the Atlanta Braves. The Twins-Braves World Series is an absolute classic. It's a classic. It's one of the greatest World Series there has ever been. If not the greatest, it's certainly, certainly in the top five. The series went down to the wire. Game seven, both teams won all of their home games. Five games were decided by one run, with three games going into extra innings. And guess what? No one was crying for ghost runners back then. Baseball fans couldn't get enough of these games in action from this series. As they had been in 1987, the Twins again find themselves down 3-2, coming back to the Homer Dome. Puckett says he's feel, he feels great batting practice, and he tells his teammates in the clubhouse, you motherfuckers climb on my back today because I'm going to carry y'all. And this is the story of one of the great, in the midst of many great ones. This might be the greatest Game 6 ever. The Twins jump out early as Puckett triples home a run in the first. He himself would score, and Minnesota has an early 2 to nothing lead. His bat put them ahead, and his glove kept them there. In the third, brave slugger Rod Gant. With a, uh, he's got Terry Pendleton aboard on first. He lifts a fly ball out to left center field of a Scotty Erickson. I mean, he crosses it. Puckett, he, uh, he runs to the spot, and he does that plant jump thing he always did out there on the wall. And, of course, old Gant is forced into jogging back to his dugout, shaking his head, looking out at Kirby, and cursing under his breath. Um, a pivotal defensive play if there was ever one in the World Series, as Puckett robbed Grant Gant of extra bases and for an RBI, at least for sure. It's a play known in the Twin Cities as simply the catch. Check of the runner, Pendleton in the pitch. Gant swings and hits one very high and deep to left center. Back is Puckett. He's at the fence. He leaves up. He caught it. Oh, what a catch. Here's the throw back to first. And safe is Pendleton. Oh, Kirby Puckett with a great grab in left center field. This capacity crowd going wild with the defensive play of the series. Puckett and Love Center actually climbed the wall and made a fantastic leaping catch. And it was a crucial play uh, because Atlanta would eventually come back and tie it up. But Puckett, that fucking beast, he drives in Dan Gladden with a sack fly to center field. And again, the Braves come back to tie it. Kirby Puckett in the 11th inning, Game 6 of the World Series, in a win-or-go-home situation. He's facing Charlie Liebrand, the salvage Southpaw veteran who has been around the block a few times, and he's a pretty solid pitcher. He falls behind the count. Liebrand then comes in on Puckett with a changeup. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, did my boy Kirby meet the moment. To the line and the left-hander delivers. Puckett swings and hits a blast. Deep left center. Way back. Way back. The Twins go to the seventh game. Catch them all, Kirby Puckett. Catch them all, Kirby Puckett. And the Twins have won this game. Four to three. On a dramatic home run by Kirby Puckett. He's just now getting to the plate. And he touched it amidst all his teammates. And the Twins win the game. And with his bat and glove, Kirby had carried the Twins back to another 
Game 7, another nail-biter that the Twins won at home for their second title in five seasons. Puckett came back in 1992 and was named AL Player of the Month in May and June, becoming only the second player to ever win in consecutive months. Throughout the season, he never went more than two games in a row without a hit, and he led the AL in total bases. He would also lead the majors in hits and grand slams that season as well. He had his highest standing in AL MVP votes when he finished second only to A's closer Dennis Eckersley. And through this amazing season, uh, you know, many people in Minnesota wondered if this would be Kirby's last year in the Twin Cities. His contract was up, and everything was very quiet at the time. Puckett would flirt with a few other clubs, but he resigned with the uh, Minnesota Twins for much less money than he could have made on the open market. He continued to thrill fans, not only in Minnesota, But really throughout the whole baseball universe, here was a dude that looked different than your average baseball icons. He was loyal to his city, to his team, that he had carried the two titles and relevancy in the late 80s and early 90s. And he was truly one of the most universally loved guys who ever played by players and fans alike. In 1993... Puckett wins uh, All-Star MVP honors when he drops Dong and, an RBI, and he has an RBI double and a 93 route of the National League uh, at Camden Yards. He reeled off more uh, milestones over the next two seasons, getting hit number 2000 in 1994. He also got hit number 2086, which passed Rod Carew for team record in hits. The season was shortened because of the strike in August. Something we've covered extensively in our Death of the Expo show. If you haven't heard that, you can find it on your pod platform, wherever you listen to me. Or you can go over to diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear all about it. Puckett's consistency in both scoring and driving in runs, it showed in 1995 when he hit home run number 200 of his career. He drove in RBI number 1,000, as well as scoring his 1,000th run. And this was all within nine days of each other. He looked like he was going to get another 100 RBI year under his belt. He had Chuck Knobloch on third and one out in the Twins' final regular season game. Pocket leaned in on the pitch. Hoping he could drive it to right and plate Knobloch, but Cleveland right-handed pitcher Dennis Martinez brought it high and tight, and the pitch struck Kirby square in the face and breaking his jaw instantly. But Kirby doesn't stay down. He's back in spring training camp 1996 on March 27th with less than a week from opening day. The Twins faced the Braves and Greg Maddox who had already won four uh, straight consecutive uh, Cy Young Awards for uh, you know the previous four seasons. Puckett was excited for this challenge, as he had only faced Mad Dog once, and that was in the 94 All-Star game, and Kirby had grounded out. So this time, Kirby ambushes Maddox with a first-inning single, and he would also get another hit off the legend before uh, he left the field. And to him, this was surely the life. Standing out on first base after getting a hit of the great one, Greg Maddox. Unfortunately, that would turn out to be Puckett's final appearance as a player. The next morning, he woke up with blurred vision. He hoped that the black dot that clouded what he saw out of his right eye would eventually leave, but it never did. In fact, it only got worse. Puckett held out hope sitting on the bench for Twins games while on the DL through the first half of the season. Finally, in July, Puckett and the Twins realized the gravity and the reality of the situation. And Kirby officially says goodbye to his loyal fans in a tearful ceremony at his house. The house that Kirby dominated, the Metro Dome. And even with this tragedy, Kirby had amassed this resume that was most important to him. 
And his clubhouse leadership was second to none. Red Sox, uh, Red Sox Hall of Famer David Ortiz on what Kirby Puckett meant to him. Good man, Kirby was, was, if everything happened like accidentally, because uh, when I was like nine, nine, ten years old, something like that, I really didn't sit down to watch baseball. Baseball was, to me, it was super boring to watch it on TV. Like, I sit down and watch a baseball game right now, and it's not because I'm a baseball player, but it's fun to watch a baseball game on TV. There's a lot of things going on. Back then, it was like, it's kind of old-looking guy on TV trying to get somebody else, somebody trying to hit the glasses, the beer, you know. It was, I don't think it was much fun, so I had no patience to sit down and watch baseball game. But my dad, you know, he, he kind of like, uh, uh, he kind of obligated me to sit down to watch a baseball game. And it was a series in between the Braves and and and, and, uh, and the Minnesota Twins when Kirby made that unbelievable catch in the field, and then he ended up went, uh, going deep. So since that time, Kirby was like my favorite player of all time, and and I had the opportunity to get to meet him. I got to I got the opportunity to come to the big league with the Minnesota Twins, the team that he played for his whole career, and 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 I had also the opportunity to have a relationship with. With Kirby, you know, Kirby was like uh, a mentor, a dad, a big brother to me, everything. And he wasn't playing anymore at the time, but he was work, working on the front office, so he was around all the time. So, so Kirby was was the best thing that ever happened to me during my career. So I noticed that he wears number thirty-four, and you wear number thirty-four. Yeah, that's why that happened. It's, of course, yeah. When I came to Minnesota, I mean, to Boston, um, I used to wear the number twenty-seven over there. So. As a player, you always want to wear the same number that you wear everywhere. But here in Boston, was retired, so they asked me, they gave me the choice of picking another number, and then I went for Kirby. And I just find that remarkable. Uh, he'll be remembered, I guess, for me, for his free-swinging approach, his energy and enthusiasm. But... Mostly, I'll just remember that smile, his infectious personality and competitive nature that thrust him into the pantheon of Minnesota sports. I mean, right there with Fran Tarkenton and Vern Gagne, right? Even with his bad break, he refused to feel sorry for himself. Even with a shortened career beyond, you know, beyond his control, he was elected to the Hall of Fame in January 2001 in his first year of eligibility, and he was inducted that summer. Within a year came disturbing reports to cause some to rethink their perception of pocket. In early 2002 came news that he and Tanya were getting a divorce. There was charges of alleged abuse and womanizing the police were involved, and it was disturbing to say the least. Look, it's not good. There's there's no way around it. It looks like Kirby went to a dark place after he was forced out of the game. As many of you may notice, I try to stay away from TMZ bullshit. That's not what I do. So if there's a percentage of people out there in the audience who would like me to at least recognize it, I do, but I'm not going to spend any time on it. Kirby is gone. He can't defend himself. And honestly, I'm out of my depths. I don't know the gossip, and I truly don't care to. I just know baseball, and I just know the legacy of the baseball player. Some may not, Some of you may not like that, but that's what it is. On Sunday, March 5th, 2006, Kirby was weighing over 300 pounds. He has a massive stroke, and he dies at the age of 46. Man, so young. Minnesotans mourn the passing of one of the state's most engaging and popular athletes ever. And the grief was somehow compounded by the revelation in recent years about a person that many idolized to an extreme de degree. Learning the truth wasn't easy for many, particularly the fans who had trouble reconciling the public persona and the real human being. 
And the truth is, Puckett is no different than me, you, and mostly anyone else you might in your, meet in your travels in life during the day. He was a human being with many virtuous qualities as well as flaws. On his way to the majors, he outside his teammates every step of the way. With the speed and the power of a world-class athlete and a smile that could eclipse the sun, he quickly established himself as one of the legends in Twins history, taking his place in the pantheon of Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva, and Rod Carew. And I guess at this point, Joe Maurer. His image as a star player was sterling throughout his career, although his reputation did take a hit by the allegations of abusive behavior after his playing days were ended prematurely from glaucoma. And that, my friends, is the story of Kirby Puckett. I hope you guys enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling the story. And before we get out of here, I want to take a close look at the great Kirby Puckett's baseball stats from his brief but powerful career. He had a 12-year career all spent with the Minnesota Twins from 1984 to 1995. Six Gold Glove Awards, three-time AL Player of the Month honors, six Silver Sluggers, 1991 ALCS MVP, 2001 National Baseball Hall of Fame, and in 1997, his number 34 is retired by the Minnesota Twins, and he's inducted into the Twins Hall of Famer. He has a 51.2 war. 1,783 games, 7,831 plate appearances, 1,071 runs, 2,304 hits, 414 doubles, 57 triples, 207 home runs, 1,085 RBI, 134 stolen bases, 76 times caught. He sports a 314, 360, 477 slash, a 37 OPS. 3,453 total bases and a 124 OPS plus. And Kirby, you know, as I'm looking at these numbers, Kirby probably had a good chance to uh, play another seven or eight years. I mean, he looked like he had that, that much left in the tank before Glaucoma rounds him, sends him spiraling out of control. It would have been interesting to see where he was going with these stats. A, a 3.14 average, 3.62 on base. I mean, that's pretty impressive shit. He had, you know, he would have had seven years to get, you know, under 700 hits for 3,000. There, there's no doubt in my mind that Kirby's going to get the 3,000 hits if he was healthy. And it really is a mix of bag of emotion when I think of how lucky I was to see Kirby get after it, but how much we lost when he lost his eyes. And, that, you know, that's the one thing that he could always depend on. There's a lot of stuff out there about Kirby Puckett, both on YouTube and books. And by all means, read up on the guy and learn more about him. Form your own opinions. Personally, like I said, I met him in the early uh, 90s. I thought he was a pretty special person, a true man of the people. None of us are perfect. We all have trials and tribulations in our lives, and Puckett was no different. Again, I hope you all enjoyed the complex study of this complex man. So, the first season is winding down as we now head into November. I got only eight shows plus a bonus show that's coming out. I'm going to reveal that uh, bonus show next week to you guys in here. Uh, and then that that's going to be it for the first season of Backwards K-Bond. It, it's pretty exciting, uh, and I can't wait to get into season two. There are only two more modern stadiums to cover here in 2022 before we dig into the new retro era of ballparks in January 23, starting with the daddy of them all, Oriole Park at Camden Yards. But next week, we will be covering Sky Dub, which would be later known as Rogers Center in Toronto, a pioneering stadium that brought us the retractable dome and all the frills that come with modern stadiums in today's game. 
But look, that's another story for another pod. Here at Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch with their nose in their bones like a bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the deck.